Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There are now dozens of documentaries about cults streaming across the major platforms. There are countless podcasts digging into unorthodox groups past and present with documentary research. But despite all the shows, how much do we really know about cults? Where is the line between religious devotion and cultish devotion? And perhaps more importantly, why are so many millions interested in consuming media about fringe movements that rarely had more than a few hundred followers? That's the project of our guest today, Berkeley professor Palomi Saha, who teaches one of the university's most popular courses, cults in popular culture. She's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Today, we're talking about the surge of popular culture about cults. And if we're going to do that, we should probably start with the word itself. Our guest, UC Berkeley professor Palomi Saha, likes to note that cult shares a linguistic root with culture, the Latin cultus, which had a variety of meanings from cultivate to adoration. But of course, we now have much more specific, if not exactly rigorous, definition these days. And here to talk with us about how we can think about the unorthodox groups that are called cults, we're joined by Palomi Saha, co-director of the program in Critical Theory at Berkeley. They're currently at work on a book, Fascination, America's quote-unquote Indian Cults. Welcome, Palomi. Thanks so much for being here. I'm delighted. So, yeah, let's talk about this, the definition that you're interested in or that popular culture is interested in for cults. Like, What are the features of a quote-unquote cult? Well, obviously, the dictionary definition, which is systems of worship or veneration, doesn't get to why people are so interested in cults. When we think of a cult, we think of something dangerous, scandalous, secret, um, something that both kind of tintillates and also uh, scares us. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we need to think about when we think about cults is why it is cults are figured as something different than, say, religion. Mm-hmm. And what, what is the answer there? <laughs> well, I've, there are kind of two answers. One is I would call it a cultural answer, which is that cults represent for us some deviation from the norm. And that norm is usually the ways in which we understand ourselves as individuals and in groups. Individually, we are supposed to understand ourselves as singular, contained, rational. And in groups, we are intended to not lose ourselves. Right? That individuality and containment is supposed to stay. Now, of course, it doesn't in most groups. But in a cult, you see all of those features 
if not totally removed, then fundamentally troubled. So in a cult, often you have this sense where the individual disappears into a collective Mm. in which um, one's own reason and will is often seen as being given up to a higher power. And that higher power is not necessarily the divine, but in fact, a figure like a charismatic leader. So there's this idea in a, when we think of cults of a group in which one person, because of a kind of power that we can't quite understand but feel, has this inordinate influence on others. So when we think of cults, we think of dangerous overreach. We think of um, people being brainwashed. These, you know, we have a kind of feeling that someone has lost themselves mm-hmm. in a way that otherwise they wouldn't. Now, that's our feeling about cults. But a cult comes into being actually through something much more mundane and boring, which is that in America, there is a single arbiter of religion. Do you know what it is? Uh, well, yes, I did the prep. But you, <laughs> you tell people. I, it is, I, it's a very funny answer. <laughs> so, you know, when I ask this question when I teach my class, students come up with these wonderful answers of who should be the arbiter of religion in America. And it's, you know, things like the church and communities and spiritual practices. But the answer is wonderfully mundane and perfectly American. It's the IRS. <laughs> I didn't want to step on your line. That's all I'm saying. You know, it is a, It's a good line, but it's true. The IRS is the single legal arbiter in America of what constitutes a religion. And the reason they're able to do that is because of the tax code that makes possible a tax-exempt status for churches. So often what we understand to be cults appear to us in some relation to, frankly, the IRS, an attempt to be recognized as a church or having their status as a church stripped from them because of some sort of legal trouble. Well, and of course, through the IRS to the entire sort of economic system and wealth building structures of the country. Yes, of course. And I mean, that's the other anxiety producing thing about cults is that you have this distribution and circulation of money that doesn't seem to follow what we think of as the normal rules, right? And this fear that you join a group and you give up all of your money. You give your money away to this shadowy thing rather than what we're supposed to do, which is spend it or pass it on to our children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking about cults in American culture with Palomi Saha, an associate professor of English and co-director of the program in critical theory at UC Berkeley. They teach a really popular course. I believe it's one of the most popular courses on campus, right? Called, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> called Cults in Popular Culture. We'd love to hear from you if you have a personal relationship to a group that was called a cult or that you believe was a cult. We'd love to hear that. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. Or, of course, you can go to our digital community as well. Um, I wanted to play you a cut, which you suggested. um, And to set it up a little bit. Um, this is a TikTok comedian, right? Uh, and they're talking about their approach to if they were asked to join a cult. What would it take you to join a cult? Because for me, I don't, I don't think it would be very much. I went to Catholic school and I was in a frat in college, so you know. Like if they had socials with other cults, I think I might consider. The problem with cults is always like the side stuff, you know? If you come to me with a pitch that's, 
hey, you know, we hang out with other cults every weekend and we do yoga in the woods and we wear linen. I'd consider that right from the jump. That sounds like a great time. But I'd have to ask, what's the catch? If you're like, yeah, we do all that fun stuff, but we do worship a chihuahua named Dave. I'd be like, okay, I mean, as long as I don't have the chihuahua, we're good there. No, no, of course not. It's really mean and it bites a lot. But uh, one other thing, we're based out of Gary, Indiana, and you will have to move here. Complete deal breaker for me. <laughs> I'll worship the Chihuahua, but I'm not moving to Indiana. Um, the TikTok about being asked to join a cult. I, oh, first, I have my own story about this TikTok, but you, what do you hear when you hear this young man talk about cults in this way? Well, when I first saw it, it was because dozens of students sent me that TikTok. <laughs> dozens, which I think is part of the phenomenon that we're talking about right now. One, that so many students are encountering by way of the algorithm a meme that is, what would it take to join a cult? Suggests that there's already this extraordinary circulation of what mm. the idea of a cult is, why you might join rather than why you wouldn't join. Um, and in this you know, 30 seconds, He's managing to encapsulate a lot of what we understand instinctively mm -hmm. cults to be when we talk about them. So when I said that, you know, we have this cultural understanding of cult and then we have this kind of blunt legal apparatus, that cultural understanding has given us a whole vocabulary, right? He talks about uh, all the good things, that is, uh, forms of escape or life that you might not have in your everyday, wearing linen and doing yeah, I was about yoga. to say linen. Let's, that's a nice one, yeah. right? right. It's a, it, it suggests a life of comfort, of pleasure, of happiness, um, the social, which is so important. Not just that you're in this group. He was in a, a, a frat, um, but also that this group has connections to other people, so that you're never alone. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, there has to be something. Different, fundamentally different. Here, it's the Chihuahua, Dave. Right. But that there's something that differentiates this group from all of the other groups that um, make up our lives. And you then know, the final bit, of course, something oh, bad has to happen. Right. There has to be, like, the catch or, you know, the moment at which it was all going so good and then disaster struck. That is essential to our cultural understanding of mm. what a cult is. It mm. was great, and then the bottom dropped out. You know, I had a, a friend who was raised in, a, in an Orthodox group here under the leader Adida. Mm -hmm. And um, when I heard this TikTok, what I was reminded of was that in the podcast that my friend made about this called Dear Franklin Jones, um, there is this mention, which I then went and, and looked up, that there was a cat named Robert who Adida said uh, he, he, he was his spiritual teacher. And he, it is one of those things where even in this TikTok, like the joke part of it does also get to that, that objects of religious veneration. You know, you're not mm -hmm. just like uh, venerating um, a cross uh, or a particular, you know, uh, set of objects. This is like an, a, a different kind of sacred object that feels outside the norm. Well, I mean, that's long been uh, the one of the questions of religion. If you look at the anthropology of religion um, and the ways in which, for example, when you have Western Europe exploring the rest of the world, there are all of these moments at which they will encounter uh, some group and the, they will say, that's not a god. 
that you're worshipping. You're worshipping something mundane. Because out of Western Europe, out of the Enlightenment, out of a particular history of Judeo-Christian thought, we have a set of principles that suggest to us that there are things that are sacred, and those are identifiable and recognizable across people, and then there are things that are profane, that is our everyday life. Mm -hmm. But those are always culturally situated. One person's profane is another person's sacred. And in that meme, the catch isn't the chihuahua. I think it's (laughs) worth thinking about. It shows us actually that what we might think of somebody else's strange object of veneration is actually no more strange than, say, uh, the Virgin Mary for somebody else, Mm. right? There's a way in which we're already denaturalizing what we think of as real religion versus cult in just that comparison. Yeah, yeah. I um, We're going to go to a break in a second, but I, for you, what are the sort of big stars of this cult popular culture so that people can kind of know? Is it is it the Netflix series like Wild Wild Country? Are there other things that people should know you're kind of are in your mind around this? Well, I mean, I think Wild Wild Country is a great example because even though it came out just before the pandemic, I think for a lot of people in the early days of lockdown, they binged 12 episodes. And I think that what we saw there was a kind of engrossing feature of cult media that is producing, I think, its own forms of cultishness. So Wild Wild Country is a great example. Um, There are dozens of very popular uh, podcasts about cults. Um, Every week, there's a new cult (laughs) docuseries that's being dropped. And (laughs) each week, it's kind of pushing at what we understand as recognizable cults and sometimes offering new versions of cults for us. We will talk more about that. We're talking about the idea of cults in American culture right now with Palomi Saha, UC Berkeley professor. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with UC Berkeley professor Palomi Saha about their fascinating work on cults in popular culture. Sort of what's our fascination with them? Why is it there's so many uh, popular uh, uh, cultural artifacts uh, around uh, cults right now? Can I ask just sort of a dumb question that kept occurring to me as I was prepping for this show? Is the real secret sauce of cult media 
just titillating sex stories? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes and no. I think the titillation is essential, but the success of cult media, I think, is actually that its form isn't original. If you look at the kinds of cult media we have, whether it's the documentary or the podcast, it actually follows a tried and true form, which is true crime. Mm -hmm. And the narrative is very much the same. Do you remember X? And it's something that you remember because of scandal. It was in the news. You have some strange cultural reference to it. Then it's do you want to know the real story? And the real story is offered to you with this um, aura of extraordinary reason and fact. That mm. if you look at these documentaries, part of what makes them so compelling is they're so well researched. And I say this as a professor. I, you know, I. Really I can see <laughs> the B roll of all the documents that they've gone through, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so Wild Wild Country is a great example. The Way Brothers, who directed and produced it, spent months deep in the archives at the University of Oregon um, for, you know, not just what happened in Rajneeshpuram, Oregon, but also like the kind of long history of the followers of Rajneesh. And it structures this incredibly rich, in-depth look at this group. And the narrative it produces is everything started off so well. Here is this moment at which we see the extraordinary draw and look at people's accounts of how they were changed and transformed. They mm. felt loved. They felt healed. Mm. And then something terrible happens. The mm. something terrible happens is the part we already know, mm. right? That's the thing about uh, true crime. We already know the terrible thing. We want to know, one, how we got there. That is, what was happening that drew all of these people to this place that built up the possibility of this terrible thing? And then, of course, we want to know why people stayed, mm -hmm. why people were in it, why mm -hmm. when, for example, again, in the case of um, Wild Ball Country, the narrative of Ma Anand Sheila, who is the secretary of Rajneesh, um, and who becomes in the docuseries the heroine, a kind of remarkable anti-hero, really, because she is accused of doing many things, including um, famously an act of bioterrorism, in which she's accused of grinding up muskrats to poison mm. the Sizzler salad bar. Mm. That story is so compelling to a viewership because it's absolutely titillating. And there's this sense that you have glimpsed both what was so transformative and profound, mm. what was so charismatic, why people stayed, why people held, helped her grind up muskrats. And you're able to experience it with the satisfaction of knowing it wasn't you. Mm. So it, you think there's actually a bit of a real search for transcendence in this, even if it's like transcendence through Netflix? Absolutely. I think we are hungry for transcendence. I think that this boom of cult media shows us something that we've actually seen over a long durée of American history, which is that there is a real spiritual hunger that seems unfulfilled by normative religion or everyday society. Mm -hmm. People seem to constantly be seeking something outside, whether it's the transcendentalists, mm -hmm. 
who turn to philosophy and poetry, um, whether it's, you know, our kind of great guru boom of the 1960s um, or the 1980s and 90s and the kind of boom of self-help gurus, we're always seeking something outside that satisfies this hunger. And so I think cult media is really Mm -hmm. tapping into something that's always been there, but it's doing so under the guise of deep secularization. Cult media doesn't claim to be, you know, proselytizing. These documents, docuseries don't want you to join, they will say, right? The point is that you don't. And yet something else is happening. I'm I'm fascinated by this because it is this deeply attenuated form of the cult to be experiencing it in this way. I mean, it's not actually the practice and work of religious devotion. And like, you know, listen to a true crime podcast. It doesn't make me a criminal <laughs> investigator or a victim. Right. Um, I, but but I don't I, I can't disagree that it does seem like there is something that's happening for people in part because it's inviting them into this whole world. That's maybe not a total institution like a cult, but it is inviting them into a into seeking Right. In the sense of like a seeker, as sometimes people uh, are referred. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there, it, it's inviting you in and it's keeping you in because podcasts and docuseries are serialized. Mm-hmm. So it's not the one hour show. It's not even the three hour feature film. You know, uh, the Wild Wild Country docuseries or even the average kind of Netflix docuseries is usually 12 one-hour episodes. And the invitation, of course, in streaming is to binge. Mm-hmm. And as you binge, as you sit there and you are fully engrossed for hours and hours on end, something is happening to you. Mm-hmm. You are being drawn in through a powerful feeling, you are held enthralled. You are feeling something that often we mm-hmm. seek in other places. Mm-hmm. So I think that that serialization and the engrossment is a sign of part of what's happening. You know, when I teach this class, and um, I pair every week one episode of a docu-series or podcast with a kind of dense philosophical text. And I say to my students, you're only required to watch or listen to this one episode. You're obviously welcome to listen to the whole thing, but you don't have to. Every week, inevitably, I will ask them how many of them binged the whole thing because they only had you know six days to do it to a person, hmm. to a person. So something happens in that being drawn in and being mm-hmm. unwilling or unable to shake it off. Let's uh, bring in a caller here. Let's bring in uh, Richard in San Francisco. Welcome, Richard. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Tell us your story. Right. So, you know, when I was 12, I had two siblings. They were a little young guy. We lived on a beautiful farm out in the middle of uh, Michigan, St. Charles. And my parents, I guess they'd you know, circling back on transcendence, they wanted to get closer to God. We were already really well involved in the church. We were in church school. and All of a sudden, my parents, after uh, meeting some folks from a, an organization out about four, mile, four hours away, um, decided they were going to pull up stake and leave uh, all our friends and family and move to this uh, remote location where they were making granola and, and organic food and living a vegan life and getting closer to God. So that... 
lasted for about five years. And, you know, when I look back on those times, there's some resilience that came from it. As 12 to 17, I joined the Navy at 17. And, um, you know, I was able to put myself through school um, finally and um, do some great things. But I always feel like I'm 10 years behind my peers Hmm. Uh, because of that, I didn't go to school after I was uh, 12 years old until I went was until I was 26. Um, so wow. I feel pretty special about that. But was it an entirely know, enclosed serious. community, Richard? Like, did you all you know That's have true. financial exchanges with the outside world, or was it really fully inward? No. Uh, yeah, we used funny money on the inside. There was about a hundred families, maybe, living there um, to uh, you know exchange for goods and so on. Um, there was an outside business, um, but no, we had no television, no radio, uh, you know, wow. so everything was cut off. My grandmother thought we had barbed wire around the 1,200 acres of red of, of oak trees. Wow. So, yeah, it was pretty yeah. intense. And if you left, you felt like you were leaving God and basically ostracized. Yeah. Richard, um, before we let you go, did after you left, you joined the Navy and then you, you kind of move on with the rest of your life. Did your family stay in that religious community? No, about a year after my uh, after I left, my family decided to jump ship of that, and they moved all to Florida. And uh, uh, they've been doing great things since then, but it, it did shatter the family. Wow. Richard, thank you so much for sharing this story with us. Um, just, and, you know, I'm glad you've lived the life you want to live. Um, I, Palomi, I mean, as, as I reflect on Richard's story, I mean, one thing that is kind of different is that it was from some of the um, other spiritually based, you know, organizations that we're talking about here is it was based in a sect of Christianity. It, does that make it different from things that are drawing on religious traditions from outside the United States? Uh, that's a great question. And Richard, thank you so much for sharing that account. I'm I'm so glad, actually, that you shared it in the terms of how much good came of it. I think it's important to take seriously all of the good things that people get out of joining these kinds of intentional communities, even if they don't stay, even if other things happen, that there is a kind of thing that is fulfilled in people, uh, forms of life and society that they just can't get outside. And I want to honor that because it's an important way for us to understand why people join these kinds of communities. That this happens to be a Christian sect, I think, is and isn't different. On the one hand, we have the kind of hard line in America that once something is not a religion, once it is a cult, once it has earned all of the suspicion that comes with our use of that word, whether or not it falls within Christianity matters less. I don't think it Mm. doesn't matter at all, but um, I think it matters less because we've left the realm of the normative. I do think, though, that America has a particular obsession with forms of foreign spirituality. Yes. Um, And that becomes its own really powerful, uh, let's call it, counterculture. And this is part of what I'm interested in in my book. Yes, I want you to talk about this because when I I encountered this thread of your work on sort of, let's call it like (laughs) Indian-ish philosophies and, and religions that are adopted and transmuted and reinvented in this American context, I mean, it's easy to point to yoga, which some of our listeners have in in comments. But can you actually start, and listeners, like, stay with us on this. Can you start with John Adams instead? (laughs) Uh, It's just such a startling 
discovery in the historical record, I think. Yeah. So when we normally think about foreign, let's call it Indian or Eastern religion in America, we usually start with like the 1960s, right? Mahesh Maharishi, the Hare Krishnas. But the origins of an American fascination with its own fantasy of Indian religion is in the early 19th century. And for me, at least in the book, I start with a set of letters between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Um, And this is after, you know, they have this kind of time where they're not speaking to each other and they're back in communication. They're writing about everything. They're writing about philosophy. They're writing about economics. They're writing a lot about politics and the kind of future of electoral politics. And what's so interesting to me is how often they talk about being utterly engrossed in understanding the Vedas, right? So Vedic philosophy. And I was trying to figure out how they were encountering it. I mean, this was the first big question. And what's so amazing about their engrossment is, and they write about, you know, reading everything they could find. So I was like, okay, what can you find? In America, what they were reading was not, obviously, texts in the original Sanskrit. It wasn't even German translations, it wasn't even British translations of German translations of the oh Sanskrit. They were reading American theologians who were encountering this material third hand and sort of building a structure of that religion largely out of their own minds. It is highly fictive hmm. and doesn't stop anyone from being totally engrossed. This is, I think, the first really interesting thing about America's relationship to foreign religions. I think it is a unique case in America that you can take the idea of antiquity and ancient civilizations and pull it out from its roots and make it anew without actually falling into the basic pitfall of heresy. In America, newness isn't heresy. It's innovation. So you have John Adams and Thomas Jefferson reading this kind of third-hand account. And as they talk about the kind of powerful vision of a transcendental self, which, of course, 50 years later, the transcendental poets would also take up, they're so taken by Vedic philosophy. And at the same time, in those same letters, as they talk about their fears about electoral politics, about what it means to put the hands of American political futurity in the rabble, um, they turn exactly to the language of Vedic philosophy. So mm. they talk about electoral politics as being the grand juggernaut rolling over people. They talk about politics as being the woman on the pyre. So exactly the cultural context that for them is this really interesting, compelling philosophical model. They're deists. They believe in the idea of God is also a terrifying social and political reality. And it's that tension between the enthralling philosophy and the terrifying reality that haunts the next 200 years of America's relationship to Indian uh, Indian spirituality. That's so interesting. Um, It does kind of feel like you're tracing in this at least one shadow history or, or set of internal resistances, even in different people, to that kind of enlightenment ideal of this kind of thinking, acting individual who's not, you know, consumed with the group and who's sort of free of God meddling in their daily life. Instead, you get this 
at least Americans imagining that there's another philosophy that's almost the exact opposite, but somehow <laughs> because of that, very attractive. Yeah, it is almost the exact opposite, but the ways in which it overlaps are purposeful. This is part of what is, again, so interesting about the most popular groups that take hold in America over the last 200 years that claim to espouse Indian or Vedic origins. They are almost all homegrown. By that, I mean they are invented in America. So take, for example, the Hare Krishnas or the um, International Society for Krishna Consciousness, which in 1965 started out of this like tiny storefront in uh, the Lower East Side and you know drew people like Allen Ginsberg, the Beatles, all kinds of people became very invested in the Hare Krishnas. That philosophy, which appears so very, let's call it Indian, right, espoused by um, Swami Prabhupada, who was a, a man in his 70s from India, um, which seemed to be so directly tied to a tradition of mm-hmm. Krishna worship. Prabhupada comes to America in 1965 as one of the first actual Indians to come after the mm-hmm. Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965. Mm-hmm. And he comes here so late in life because he has failed to actually build any followers in India. In India, he's just one of countless people who are espousing Krishna consciousness. He comes here and he actually builds a philosophy designed for an American audience. He recognizes that there is a desire for a kind of transcendental feeling. So he offers this idea of chanting and just Mm -hmm. this one chant, and he produces the whole musical element out of it. But he also suggests that there's nothing else you have to do. You can Mm. give up on the rituals, don't learn the philosophy, definitely don't learn the language, right? All of those roots can be shaken free. And what you get instead is not just access to this ancient religion, he will claim that you can become the ultimate. You can actually transcend hundreds of lifetimes. You can become what other people tied to ritual can. We're talking about the idea of cult in American culture with Palomi Saha. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're in the middle of a fascinating conversation about the idea of cults in American culture with Palomi Saha, associate professor of English and co-director of the program in critical theory at UC Berkeley. They teach a course called Cults in Popular Culture. 
Um, we have uh, Jackie in Walnut Creek on the line. Thanks so much for joining us, Jackie. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Yeah, we'd love to hear your story. Um, yes. Um, so my father, John David Garcia, a Mexican-American, uh, he moved to Oregon. He took us back to the land to a 500-acre sheep ranch uh, in order to start a science and evolutionary ethics school called the um, hmm. Society for Evolutionary Ethics, which he called C-S-E-E. And he started out really well-meaning trying to change society and save the world. But um, as he gained power and people followed him and then people started becoming disillusioned with him, uh, he started having dreams of a revelation and that he was part of the quantum universe and um, that God had chosen him to lead this new Mm -hmm. way. Uh, And he was taken down by tax fraud, of all Mm -hmm. things, um, because he was a school and uh, he hadn't been paying taxes for years. He was just single-mindedly trying to pursue his idea of saving the world by, and it was right at the time of the Rajneesh, too, Mm. and he he greatly admired the Rajneesh for um, taking, trying to take over the town politics, Um, but he was really quite a narcissist and really amazingly brilliant and well-spoken. People were captivated by his message. He he published several books on um, the first one called His The Moral idea. Society. Yeah. Um, but uh, in the end, he was a very sad yeah. person because he could not get people to follow him. And uh, everyone began to see mm. the bad things that he had done in the name of yeah. trying to save the world. And, and then, I was a girl. I was um, 15, 14, 15 at the time. Yeah. I mean, Jackie, looking back on that period of your life, I mean, how do you evaluate the role that this community played, you know, in in your personal development? You know, it was really quite fabulous for me because I was surrounded by all these very well-meaning and intellectual people who believed that scientists could change the world, that believed that scientists should be making all political decisions. And my father was a great believer in climate change. And he, he was writing about climate change in his first book in 1970. Um, and so maybe he was right. Maybe, maybe if we'd had scientists making scientific decisions instead of political ones, so it was very good to, for me, and it wasn't until years later that I realized it was a cult because he had uh, this book, and we had our own lingo and his dogma, mm. the way we spoke. Other people couldn't understand a lot of the things we talked about with um, creative, creativity mm. and entropy, and he, yeah. he had quite an extensive lingo. Wow. Ja- oh, Jackie, stay with us. I mean, Palomi, are there, is there anything just from your study of this that you would want to ask Jackie? I mean, it's an amazing story, Jackie. Thank you so much for sharing it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, as you were talking, I kept thinking that makes so much sense. And I think it's worth us thinking about that, that what your father offered as a philosophy made 
enormous sense to many yes. people. And yes. there's a reason, right? I mean, people join these groups because they find that their big questions in their everyday life aren't being answered. Whether it mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. climate change, whether it's social isolation, whether it's economic prosperity, often people find that all of the rules that we're supposed to live by in normative society are failing to give us the life or the answers that mm-hmm. we need. And so when someone offers you such a compelling and often totalizing philosophy, why wouldn't you be incredibly drawn in? I mean, this is part of the really important draw of these groups. They're not just um, they're not just escapists. They're actually offering something that you can't find in the rest of your life. And we have to understand that people join not out of a misrecognition of what they need. Often people join out of a crystal clear sense of what is missing and where they might get it. Thank you. I, I think that is exactly right. And when he be, when he started believing that he was a messianic figure, those people might not have believed he was messianic, but they believed his message mm-hmm. so deeply that they decided that the flawed messenger was worth staying with the program and the message and the community of really wonderful and creative people. Yeah. Hey, Jackie, thank you so much. Thank you, uh, really, for sharing that story and, um, and memories of your, your father and the, your, your childhood. I, you know, I do want to talk a little bit about the dangers of things. And we've kind of saved it, you know, for, for later. Let's just, uh, one listener writes, I was in a, quote, psychedelic therapy cult in the early 1990s in the Bay Area. In addition to traditional talk therapy, they offered weekend psychedelic, quote, healing circles and dosing with all kinds of substances that blasted you into other dimensions. This was all highly illegal at the time. Then I saw a photo of my best friend running around naked with one of the leaders, but it wasn't during one weekend experience. I was blindfolded, led into the forest, tied to a tree where I started crying until morning that I had finally had enough. It was both traumatizing and spiritually revealing, ultimately life-changing, maybe in a good way. I'm still a bit miffed at the betrayal, the irresponsibility, and violations of trust, but now my life is pure magic. I, I think wow. There's, there's, right, there's these branching paths that, that result. You know, we have um, other listeners who want us to talk about Jonestown, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps like, um, at least in San Francisco history, one of the, the darkest episodes um, in this in this history. So how do you, if, if we've been talking about the good things that can come from this and you feel that ambivalence in that listener's comment, how do we also deal with the troubling aspects and how can one know when things are going over the line or in ways that are, that are dangerous to oneself? Yeah, I, th- I think we would, be, we would have to talk about the dangers because terrible things can and do happen. The question of how they happen, I think, is first kind of easily answered in that that enclosed community and structure, this idea of the secret lingo, the idea of knowing a truth that other people don't see, produces enormous insularity, which is powerful for social cohesion, but allows for lots of things to happen without 
oversight, mm-hmm. right? Once you recede from everyday society, yeah, something transformative can happen. But there are also so many sites of overreach. And the People's Temple, which we now call often Jonestown, is a really good example of that. That also started as something really good. I mean, we have long forgotten, I think, its origins, but Jim Jones began the People's Temple as a radical racial justice Mm -hmm. church. He had a vision early on of racial equality in in the era of segregation, and he thought that the church was where that could really happen. People were drawn to him because they felt like he actually understood something so essential about social inequality. Now, of course, once he became quite paranoid and quite obsessed with Mm -hmm. maintaining his power, and he moves his church down to Jonestown, Guyana, we begin to really see powerfully the dangers that unfold. And, you know, when I teach the People's Temple to my students, we have to talk about what is so hard, which is that, you know, as we all know, it ends in a mass, I will call it a mass killing, because there is some suicide and then there is also um, some murder that happens. Mm -hmm. But the question that we ask is, how does that happen? How does a group form in which within it the unthinkable can happen? Mm-hmm. Because when hundreds of people die together because they're in a group, that is unthinkable. It's beyond the pale. And it's not an easy answer why people are driven to this. It's not just loyalty. It's not just charisma. It's not just something like brainwashing. There are so many things that bind people and transform them that the unthinkable Mm. kind of recedes. But doesn't it say something that so many of these organizations seem to end up this way, seem to drive their leaders to abusive behaviors? And I just want to note, every leader that we've mentioned so far has been a man. Like, doesn't that that say maybe this form of organizing people has very, like, troubling elements? I mean, I think anytime we have something like absolute power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it's certainly not just in cults. We see this in like, I mean, we can just look to corporate America. You have somebody who has inordinate power over lots of people's lives and all kinds of violences and transgressions happen. Mm -hmm. Um, It is about what it means to install kind of devotion and power in a singular figure. I think that is problematic. It is also often that these these communities, again, like other structures more familiar to us, demand a kind of allegiance that often means that when you start to see things going badly, there isn't a way for you to report it, a way to step outside of it. You're fully enthralled within the system of power. It happens certainly in cults. Mm. I would also just say that it doesn't just happen in cults. Yes. And that is our next movement here. We have a bunch of listeners who I'm going to group these comments under the rubric of is this another thing a cult? And we also have a, a cut to play that you also suggested. So here's uh, here we go. Can extreme fandom 
be considered a cult, for example, the fans of Taylor Swift. Judd writes, all major religions were at some point in their histories a cult responding to local conditions. Another listener writes, is Christian science a cult? Another listener writes, aren't all religions cults? I was raised Catholic and was very happy in this cult that asked very little for me. But after my kids both graduated from Catholic high school, I realized that it really was a cult, especially traveling to Europe and learning the history of the church. You learn how most practices and stories are created to control the masses. Keith writes, in the intro to the show, you mentioned that rarely do cults have followings of more than a few hundred people, which used to be true, but now we're witnessing a mass cult with millions of followers, which is the cult of MAGA and Trumpism. Donald Trump is a charismatic leader with near-divine power over the lives of his followers, many of whom claim they blindly followed his direction when they stormed the Capitol on January 6th. You can't talk about cults without talking about Trump and Fox Media's role in propelling this mass brainwashing. And there is also a kind of commercialization of this type of organization. And we're going to listen to a, a cut from The Simpsons, which you suggested. <laughs> Mrs. Marge Simpson, we're going to play Taps because you killed it today. And riding to Taps and a one and a two and a go. Mark, you've been sitting on that thing all day. Why don't you take a walk, get a little exercise? Wait a minute, Marge in charge? What happened to Mrs. Marge Simpson? I'm just getting tired of the same old things. Like my last name? That was my gift to you at our wedding. <laughs> it's just a username. You're overreacting. Oh, am I? Am I overreacting to my wife being taken in by a cult? It's not a cult. It's just a group of people improving their lives, paying money, and slavishly following a charismatic leader. Oh, boy, do I love drinking that Kool-Aid. <laughs> so the Simpsons are obviously getting at this in sort of a biting, sarcastic way. But as a Peloton user, I have to say there, there's something to that. And we've also you know, heard a, a, the wide variety of other types of organizations, including political ones that our listeners thought have cult-like characteristics. So how do you think about those? How do you think about all that wide variety of things that people say? Is this a cult? So the question, is this a cult, is both a terrific question and a terrible one. <laughs> because when we say that, we're actually asking probably 10 other questions which is, why do people feel so strongly about this? Why do people feel like they, how do people feel that they've been transformed? What is it that they see or feel that I can't see or feel? What keeps them in even though I can clearly see that something is going wrong, right? Those are the questions that drive the, is this a cult? But when we name it a cult, we kind of have to do away with those questions. And part of what I want to do is ask us to, to bring those questions back to the fore, whether it is in the kind of humorous logic of Marge and the Peloton, in which mm -hmm. she gives us a kind of uh, connotative that is mm -hmm. like not the dictionary, but how we in everyday speech use cult, um, or the much more serious example of MAGA, mm -hmm. um, that there is something that we fundamentally recognize as not just one thing. A cult is never just one thing. It's a way of understanding a problem. And that problem is usually a, a, the problem of overattachment, of being too caught up, of losing yourself in the mind of another person, in the will of another person. This mm. is always 
the kind of lingering danger around cults that you lose yourself. Hmm. You know, we had so many calls and comments this hour asking specifically about the like MAGA world. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it is hard to imagine a better example of the problem and the possibilities of something like a cult than MAGA. Because you see first that people are drawn to this because something is missing in their life. Mm -hmm. And there's an entire political philosophy now trying to articulate what is missing. And what is missing is sometimes access to what they see as, you know, the great economic boom. Or um, what is missing is feeling like they're within the kind of mainstream of culture and society. Or what is missing is a sense of kind of political empowerment. And MAGA offers this. It offers it also with this sense that you will always belong as long as you believe in a, a tiny handful of things. It's not complicated. A good cult keeps it simple. You give people one thing to be attached to. And in return, you offer them what is utterly missing in their life. So, you know, political meaning, social cohesion, but also this feeling of being right. They see something that the rest of us can't see. Mm. They've been chosen, right? This is the language of both religion, but also of conspiracy. Yeah. Um, We have been talking about the idea and popularity of cults in American culture with Palomi Saha, Associate Professor of English and Co-Director of the Program in Critical Theory at UC Berkeley. Thank you so much for this, Palomi. That was fascinating. It was so fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah. They also teach a course called Cults in Popular Culture if you want to try and sneak onto campus. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you so much for all of your calls and comments and sharing those stories. We really appreciated that. Stay tuned for the next Hour of Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.